Let's pray. We'll ask God for his help. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you will help us to understand what your word says this evening and uh, you will help us to, to love you, to trust you more as we reflect on its implications for our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a country needs military forces. Uh, that's, uh, that may be a sad thing, but in a fallen world it's true, isn't it? You've got to have an army, you've got to have a navy, you've got to have an air force. We need them for our security, we need them for our protection, we need them for our defence. We, we need it uh, to protect us from uh, dangers, threats within, to, to stop people revolting against the government, to ensure stable government, the rule of law. And we need an army, navy and air force to protect us from external threats from people who would otherwise attack us. In Australia, the organisation responsible to protect and defend us is called the ADF, the Australian Defence Force. Uh, since 1976, it's just force, singular. It's one single organisation that includes within it the Army, the Navy and the Air Force. They're all one now. Uh, did you know the ADF is under the authority of the federal government? Uh, states are forbidden from raising up military forces. Did you know that? Uh, you can't have a New South Wales army. That would be treason against the country. Uh, or do you know who's in charge of the ADF? Who's the boss of the ADF? Uh, the Commander-in-Chief is the Governor-General on behalf of the Queen. The Queen's in charge of our Australian Defence Force. In, in practice, however, the ADF is commanded by the Federal Minister of Defence with a number of subordinate ministers. ADF's relatively small. Uh, at the 30th of June last year, there we, uh, we had um, 58,206 full-time active duty personnel and we had 21,694 active reservists. So it's around about 80,000 soldiers in Australia. Uh, small in number, but our forces are quite technologically sophisticated. Uh, we've, we've only got con conventional weapons, no weapons of mass destruction, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, but we are well equipped. And the ADF is supported by a strong budget. Uh, the Australian government in the 2017 to 2018 financial year allocated $34.7 billion to the ADF. $34.7 billion, that's 7.28% of total government expenditure. Oh, here's another thing I found interesting. Uh, the priorities of the ADF. Do you know why we have an ADF? Uh, their current priorities are set out in the 2016 Defence White Paper. And the paper identifies three areas of focus. Area number one, to defend Australia from direct attack or coercion. Makes sense, doesn't it? We want an army to defend us if someone attacks us. Uh, second thing, though, is to contri contribute to the security of Southeast Asia and the South Pacific. And the third priority is to contribute to stability across the Indo-Pacific region so that we may have, and I quote, a rules-based global order which supports our interests. A rules-based global order which supports our interests. In other words, um, a peaceful world that is no threat to us. Makes a lot of sense to me. I personally am very pleased that we have an ADF. I'm pretty sure we would not be sitting here in peace and prosperity in the way that we are today without the ADF. And you know, for Christians, the Australian Prayer Book encourages us to pray for the Defence Forces. Um, here's the prayer, let me read it to you. In fact, you might want to pray it with me. 
Here's the prayer for the Defence Forces from the Australian Prayer Book. Eternal God, the only source of peace, we pray for all who serve us in the Defence Forces of this land. Give them courage and comfort in all dangers. And help us, we pray, to seek for all people the freedom to serve you and each other in peace and justice. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I say amen to that, don't you? Sounds very much like 1 Timothy chapter 2. I think it is very important that we have the ADF to protect us, to defend us, to be our security. Well, this evening we begin a series, an eight-week series on the book of Two Kings. And many of you, if you cast your mind back through all that food and all those holidays back to last year, you may remember that we finished last year with the book of One Kings. Well, in fact, one and two kings, they're just one big story. It's just someone ran out of scroll or something like that. And so that was One Kings. Two Kings just picks up the story from One Kings where it left off. So, so see if you can cast your mind back through, let's go past the Christmas pudding past the New Year's, past the fireworks. Do you remember where we started in 1 Kings? I know it's a long time ago. Do you remember where did we start 1 Kings? We started with, do you remember? Solomon. Remember King Solomon takes over from his father. Uh, Solomon is uh, the ruler of Israel, which at the time is one united country. Militarily quite strong. And overall, I mean, a few little problems with Solomon, particularly later on, but overall he's a wise king. He brings peace and prosperity and security to Israel. But you remember, things went downhill pretty quickly, didn't they? Under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, there was civil war in Israel. Country split in two. The southern kingdom of Judah, from which we get the name Jews, Southern kingdom of Judah, still ruled over by Rehoboam and then the sons, uh, the, the, the family line of David. But then the northern kingdom of most of Israel, which is still called Israel. In the southern kingdom, we followed the kings a little bit. And they're a bit of a mixed bag, aren't they? Some of them were okay, some of them pretty terrible. But mostly we're focused on the northern kingdom and every single king in the northern kingdom has been terrible. Do you remember they changed their religion completely under the first guy, Jeroboam? He said, we don't don't want to worship God down in the temple anymore, as God said they should, because that's down in Judah. Do you remember what he did? Set up golden calves in the north and south. Let's worship God through golden calves. As if they hadn't tried that before. But then it gets even worse than that. Because the latest dynasty, the dynasty of Omri and Ahab, they don't even worship God at all. They worship the idol Baal. Now, God has brought down dynasty after dynasty in this northern kingdom of Israel. And as we entered one kings, we've heard the death knell for Omri and Ahab's ministry. God has said, in the generation of Ahab's son, I will put an end to this dynasty. And now, at the end of one kings, Ahab has died. And so as we come into two kings, Ahab's son, Ahaziah, is king. Uh, He has an accident at home. Someone this morning said that's why he's called Aha, Zaya. <laughs> he has an accident at home. I'm glad it appeals to you, Warren. <laughs> Ahaziah has an accident at home. He's quite badly injured. Uh, he wants to know what's going to happen to him. But he's not a worshipper of God. 
He doesn't seek God. He doesn't seek God's word. He doesn't seek God's guidance. He doesn't seek help or protection or healing or strength from God. He doesn't turn to God at all. Instead, following in the footsteps of his parents, Ahaziah consults with the idol Baal. Have a look with me. 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 1. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. Now the prophet Elijah hears about what Ahaziah has done. You remember the prophet Elijah? Uh, He's this brave prophet who brings God's word to Israel. And God tells Elijah what to do. He says, I want you to bring a message to King Ahaziah. I want you to tell him, because he consulted an idol instead of me, he's going to die. Verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them. Samaria is another name for Israel. Because remember, under Omri, Samaria has become the capital of Israel. So now it's sometimes called Samaria. Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. The message comes to Ahaziah. He's not happy about it. And he decides to send off a military captain with 50 soldiers to Elijah, maybe to capture and imprison him, certainly to try to intimidate, to frighten him, maybe to get him to back down or something like that. But Elijah won't be intimidated. You may remember, do you remember back in 1 Kings when Jezebel tried to intimidate Elijah and he, he ran away? Those days are over. Now Elijah runs from no one. And uh, it doesn't go well for Ahaziah's captains and soldiers. Uh, Elijah and his God are way more powerful than any military force. Uh, so twice, Elijah calls down fire from heaven. Does that ring any bells for you? Elijah calling down fire from heaven? Remember, that's what he did with the um, prophets of Baal at uh, Mount Carmel. Twice more, Elijah calls down fire from heaven and both times all the soldiers are killed. Finally, a third captain comes, but he's not coming to intimidate Elijah anymore. He's coming to beg for his life. And God tells Elijah to spare the captain and uh, to go and give his message to Ahaziah in person. Jump with me down to verse 13. 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 13. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, this is what the Lord says, is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on, you will certainly die. And that's what happens. God's word comes true, Ahaziah dies. And he's got no children. So, 
a man called Joram takes over the throne. Who is Joram? It's Ahaziah's brother, another son of Ahab. Now remember, we've already been told the dynasty of Omri and of Ahab will end with the generation of Ahab's son. So this this is a reprieve, but God's promise still stands. This is the last generation for the dynasty. Verse 17. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for all the other events of Ahaziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? So that's the end for King Ahaziah. That's what chapter 1 is about, the end of King Ahaziah. And you would think that this is a massive deal. I mean, Israel have lost their king, their general, their military commander. Israel have lost... You would expect this would be an enormous loss for them. But in fact, it's not really any big loss at all, is it? Israel are better off without kings like, like this guy, Ahaziah. But as we come to chapter 2, a much more serious issue arises. Uh, We find out that Elijah is going to be taken away from Israel. Now, Elijah's protege, Elisha, knows this is deadly serious. I'm sorry that Elijah and Elisha are so similar in names. I'm sorry if I get them confused sometimes as well. Elijah is the original. Elisha is the one who follows him, the protege. Now, Elisha knows that it is deadly serious that Elijah is going to be taken away. I mean, remember back in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, it was Elijah who stood pretty much alone as God's voice to Israel. I mean, where would they have been without Elijah? And so as Elisha finds out that Elijah is going to go away, he follows him around, he sticks to him like glue, he will not let him go, won't let him out of his sight. Now, chapter 2 and verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, So be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Now as we come to the Jordan River, there are lots of witnesses around and and they see Elijah do a miracle. And it's a miracle that might ring a bell for you. Elijah parts the Jordan River so that he can walk through on dry ground. Ring a bell for you? That's the miracle of Joshua, isn't it? It's the miracle of Joshua. Those of you who did Exodus, uh, uh, Joshua a couple of years ago, um, 
with us, though. Can you remember what the point of it was? What was the reason why Joshua parted the Jordan? Of course, it was so they could get into the land. But the big thing was that Moses had parted the Red Sea. And now, after decades of Israel having Moses as their leader, they can see when Joshua does that, that he's the genuine successor of Moses. That's the significance of this miracle. It shows that Joshua is the successor of Moses. All right, keep that in mind, as now we see Elijah part the Jordan River. And then as they go through, finally, Elijah asks Elisha what he wants. And he says, I want to inherit a double portion of your spirit. Double portion? portion that's that's the inheritance of the firstborn son the firstborn son gets a double inheritance so Elisha is saying I want to be your firstborn son I want to be the one who inherits your ministry and Elisha says maybe we'll see verse 7 50 men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha ooh. Yes, okay, verse 7. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. Then another amazing miracle happens. So Elijah is taken up to heaven in a whirlwind and there's this heavenly chariot with horses of fire. Pretty amazing. Elijah does not die. Very, very rare. In the Bible, I can think of Maybe one, possibly two, depending on what you think about Melchizedek. There are very few people in the Bible who don't die. It's an extraordinary miracle. And in response, in response to Elijah going up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elisha says something that's very, very important. Very important, I think, for understanding the whole book of two kings. It's very important, but it's not immediately obvious what he means. Elisha calls Elijah the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Verse 11, have a look with me. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horses of his, horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. The chariots and horsemen of Israel. What do you think Elisha means? No doubt he's got the idea from seeing the the heavenly chariot and the horsemen. but, But what does it mean for Elijah to be the chariots and horsemen of Israel? Put yourself back in those days. What are the chariots and horses all about? Chariots and horses, they are the the kind of the essence, the strength, the power of your army. That's the, that's the tank division of your army. Okay, so, so what's Elisha saying? He's saying that Elijah is Israel's ADF. 
In other words, like the ADF protect and defend us, Elisha is saying that Elijah was the protector and defender of Israel. That's fascinating, don't you think? Particularly given chapter 1, we've just seen the end of the king. It's not the king who protects Israel. It's not Israel's army that protects them. It is the word of God that protects Israel as it's given to them through men like Elijah. But now Elijah's gone. So what's going to happen when the next Ahab and Jezebel decide to take over and turn the nation to Baal worship? Who's going to stand up for God's word? And now Israel without Elijah are defenceless. But in another great and gracious miracle, God does pass on Elijah's ministry to Elisha. A whole heap of witnesses see Elisha do the same miracle that Elijah did. And now we see what the whole thing with the parting of the Jordan is. Because just like the parting of the Jordan showed that Joshua was the genuine successor of Moses, now the parting of the Jordan shows that Elisha is the genuine successor of Elijah. And many witnesses see and recognize the truth. Verse 13. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water now with it, and struck the water with it. Where now is the, God, is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, "The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha." And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Now, last part of the chapter, they send out a search party for Elijah, but it's fruitless. He's gone. He's gone. But it doesn't matter now because by God's grace, Elisha will bring God's word to Israel. Elisha will take on the role of being the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And in fact, near the end of Elisha's life, that is exactly what the king of the time, King Jehoash, calls him. It's in chapter 13, verse 14. If you're interested, 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14, King Jehoash says to Elisha, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. He really did take on the mantle of Elijah. Okay. Uh, Can you see what's here then in these two chapters? Uh, Chapter 1 is the end of Ahaziah. God raises up Joram to be his successor. Uh, But more importantly, chapter 2, it's the end of the ministry of Elijah, this man who's brought God's word to Israel, but by God's grace, there's a successor for him as well, Elisha. All right, I need you to cast your mind back through New Year's, back through Christmas again, back to last year, uh, to the the book of 1 Kings. Uh, Do you remember we talked about it a few times, what the point is of the books of 1 and 2 Kings? And and again, it's got to do with with where they start and where they finish, isn't it? Do you remember the book of 1 Kings starts with uh, Solomon and Israel being powerful and united and prosperous? Uh, But do you remember where it ends at 2 Kings? At the end of 2 Kings, Israel is destroyed, completely destroyed, never to rise again. And Judah is defeated by the Babylonian Empire and in exile. And and so these books of 1 and 2 Kings, they take us from... The highest point in Israel's history under Solomon 
through to the lowest point in Israel's history when they're defeated and destroyed and in exile. Think about the books though, they don't just tell you the story from high to low, they give the reason why Israel has gone from such heights to such depths. And here I think is one of the critical passages for understanding kings because the critical insight it gives us is this. Israel's defeat and destruction is not a problem of military might. It's not a problem of military strategy. It's not that they didn't have enough soldiers or a clever enough um, general or something like that. No, 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 no. I mean, it does happen through military defeat, doesn't it? The, the, the destruction of Israel happens because the Assyrian army comes and destroys them. And the destruction of Judah comes because the Babylonian army comes and defeats them. But it's not a question of their military might. It's not about the strength of their army, no, no. The real chariots and horsemen of Israel are men like Elijah. Men who bring the word of God to Israel. Do you see the point? In the final analysis, Israel's security is not their army. Israel's security is their obedience to God's word. It is far more important for Israel's security that they trust God and obey his word than that they have the mightiest army in the world. It is far more important for Israel's security that they trust God and obey his word than that they have the mightiest army in the world. That's the point. And you know what? It's the same for you and for me as Christians. It is no different. As Christians, our security, our protection is found in God. And in particular, in what he's done for us through Jesus. There on your outline, I've put some verses from 1 Peter. Can you see them there? I've got them um, right-hand side, down the bottom there. I'll read them to you. Have a look here and tell me from these verses, where is our security in this life? Where is our security in the next life? Ready? Let me read. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept, literally guarded, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, look at it again. Who is shielding us now while we wait for Jesus to return? Not the ADF, is it? No, no, God's power. Who is it that is keeping, guarding an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil or fade? God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ through the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Can you see our security, our protection in this life and in the next is in Jesus. And what do we need to do? Can you see it there? Through faith are shielded by God's power. What we've got to do is trust Jesus. Of course, it's God's word, the Bible, that's able to make us wise for salvation through this 
faith in Jesus, isn't it? It's God's word, the Bible, that is able to teach, rebuke, correct, train us in righteousness so we're thoroughly equipped for every good word. So friends, here's the big idea. Jesus and his word are our chariots and horsemen. You get it? I mean, if I'd stood up at the beginning and said Jesus and his word are our chariots and horsemen, you wouldn't have had the faintest idea what I'm talking about. You get it now though? Jesus and his word are our chariots and horsemen. That's something to be so thankful for, isn't it? I mean, God in his grace, he didn't leave Israel without his word. He raised up Elisha to succeed Elijah. They'd have been in so much trouble without the word of God. He's been so gracious to us as well, hasn't he? So gracious to protect us now and to give us an eternal inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. What a magnificent security protection is available to us. No wonder the Bible says then that we should let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we teach and encourage and rebuke and and, and challenge each other. And no wonder it says that we should do it, do you remember, with gratitude in our hearts. We should be just so thankful as we read the Bible and as we share it with each other. We should be so thankful as we reflect on what God has done for us in Jesus. We should be so thankful that we have a security that is infinitely beyond what the ADF can offer now and forever. Something we should be thankful about. But also, friends, I think we need to let it challenge our priorities. In the final analysis, it's not the ADF that is our chariots and horsemen. They're not our ultimate security. But, But notice this, it's not our education either. I keep hassling my children to study, especially poor Joel is is doing year 12 now. But education is not going to protect us in this life and the next. Still study. (laughs) It's not our career either. It's not going to protect us in this life and the next. It's not our money. It's not our family. It's not our exercise and healthy lifestyle that just puts off the inevitable. Gravity's still going to win. I mean, these things are all good, but they're not our ultimate security. It is Jesus and his word that are our chariots and horsemen. Do do you believe that? Do you really believe that? I believe it in my head, at least. So the question then is, is that belief reflected in our lives? If someone looked at your life... You know, if they could take a video and, and watch you day by day, would they say, yeah, I can see that person's security is in Jesus? Would they see it on your Facebook profile? I was uh, talking to one of our elders the other day. I was uh, saying that, how I think a, a particular man is, is a godly Christian. I was thinking of trying to encourage him into leadership. Uh, but this elder said to me, have you seen his Facebook profile? Because I've never seen a Facebook profile in my life. I wouldn't, wouldn't, there's no Facebook profile if I fell over one. And I said, of course, no, I'm not on Facebook. He said, you know, if you were to look at his profile, you would be really disappointed. He said, it's all about good food and fine wine and travel. It's all about his career. It's all about the educational attainments of his children. He said, if you look at his Facebook profile, there is not a thing on there that would indicate that the man has ever even heard of Jesus, let alone that he's 
basing the security of his entire life and eternity on Jesus. I'm never going to see your Facebook profile. Never, ever. But if someone looked at it, or if they looked at your real life, where would they say your security lies? Jesus and his word are our chariots and horsemen. It's great news. It's something to be thankful for, but I think it also is a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the glorious news that there is an eternal inheritance guarding in heaven for us and that we too are shielded by your power through faith in Jesus. We thank you that you are our security and we thank you that Jesus and your word are our chariots and horsemen. We pray, Heavenly Father, with great thanks to you, but we, we ask that you'd so fill us with your spirit that we... we We don't just say this or believe this in our heads, but we live trusting Jesus as our security for this life and the next. We pray it in Jesus' name.